This is Andrew Denary with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the people who make today's space exploration possible. Our guest today is Chris Carberry. Chris is the CEO of Explore Mars Inc. and president of the Space Drinks Association. Prior to his tenure with Explore Mars, Chris served as executive director of the Mars Society. He is also the author of the book Alcohol in Space, Past, Present, and Future, which was released by McFarland Publishers in 2019, and he has penned more than 100 articles published in a number of highly respected publications around the world. Chris has also been interviewed hundreds of times for print and online publications, as well as local, national, and international radio and television outlets. He has extensive political and policy outreach experience with both the legislative and executive branches of the U.S. government and has testified to both the United States Senate and the House of Representatives. Prior to joining the space community, Carberry worked as a historical researcher and archivist. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, first question is, uh, when and how did your passion for the Red Planet begin? Well, it's interesting. I'd always been interested in space exploration. You know, even when I was, you know, in elementary school, middle school, I was always fascinated with astronomy, always had telescopes, but I was never particularly great at mathematics. I was good at various sciences, but I went into policy, politics, history, and didn't really see for a while what role I could play within the space community. But then around the 19, mid-1990s, to date myself, I started reading up on it again, read a number of books, including Robert Zubrin's The Case for Mars, but also a number of others, and realized by reading these that, you know, I did have a role that, you know, perhaps the most critical role that's been missing is continuous, sustainable political support. You know, over the decades, over multiple administrations, there just hasn't been consistent support. And so I've tended to start over each administration or even do during different Congresses. So that's how I started. I ended up joining various space advocacy organizations as a volunteer, but quickly became one of the top people in their policy outreach, still as a volunteer, but eventually it became my day job. And then you were with the Mars Society, and then uh, what led you to co-found Explore Mars 10 years ago? Yeah, I was with the Mars Society for a number of years before I became executive director. I was political director for, for the Mars Society. Uh, oh, for quite a while, for many years. And then in 2008 and 2009, I was executive director. But then, you know, a group of us decided to leave the Mars Society. And we thought we wanted to create an organization to start doing projects. And originally, we didn't even want to start a new organization. We just wanted to do projects, but realized to do so, we needed to have a 501c3. And so kind of almost started by accident because we weren't originally wanting to start a new group. But then we started formulating a lot of other ideas and we realized we were filling a niche. There was a gap. You know, you had the membership groups like the Mars Society or National Space Society or Planetary Society, and they did their thing really well. But we were filling a particular area where we partnered more closely with industry, with NASA, and kind of worked from the inside out rather than the outside in like a lot of advocacy groups do. So that's how we started. And, you know, we've been fairly successful, I think, over the past now 11 years. We were founded um, in early February 2010. So we just passed our 11th anniversary. That's awesome. 
In your opinion, what's currently the greatest hindrance to getting humans to Mars? Is it just investment? Is it the question of whether humans can endure the journey? Or is it the difficulty in establishing accommodations that will support life there? I think there's a combination of things. From a programmatic perspective, and I think this is becoming less of an issue, the big issue has always been creating sustainability in both policy and that funding area. And I think that's still an issue. I think we still need to keep momentum moving forward. But we've had a lot of momentum over the last decade. It's quite extraordinary with all the momentum you know, with NASA, what the plans that NASA is developing, the commercial sector, what the commercial sector is doing, and internationally, we are in a much better place than we were 10 years ago. So, you know, as long as we can keep up momentum, we still need to make right decisions. We can still screw this up. But I think that is not as much of an issue. It's still an issue, but we still need to solve things like, and this is regardless if we're doing it through, you know, more traditional approach, you know, with NASA or if some company like SpaceX is able to do it independently. We still need to figure out things like entry, descent, and landing. There are some great plans, but it's still a big challenge. The biggest thing we've ever landed on Mars, now twice actually, was originally the uh, Curiosity, but now the Perseverance rover, which is essentially one metric ton. At minimum, most mission architecture people, designers, believe we'll need to land between 20 and 40 metric tons. If you're talking about SpaceX plan, that's considerably more. And so it's a challenge trying to get us down to the surface successfully and, of course, getting people off the surface. I'll I'm going to go under the assumption that the first missions will not be one-way missions to Mars. And so I think that is certainly the issue. I don't think the trans is a bit, as big an issue as they think. I think we can deal with the radiation. I think we have enough statistics right now, at least to indicate it's not going to be a major issue. Obviously, there are extrasolar events, which we can prevent against, but, you know, generally the radiation levels seem to be, from what I've seen from what Curiosity sent back, could be manageable. The astronauts would have to accept a certain percentage increase of cancer sometime in their lives, but you would do that when you move to various parts of the country or, you know, or do certain things in your life. So I think most astronauts would accept that risk. But so I think the biggest thing with transit is just keeping, you know, up the mental health, you know, figuring out how to keep the astronauts engaged and making sure the living space is properly arranged, you know, for privacy. I think the thing we've learned over the past year within the pandemic is everybody's been living in kind of a Mars simulation, you know, trying to figure out how to remain sane in isolation. And while it's more um, luxurious than what the astronauts will endure on the way to Mars, it's still something that's been able to focus people's attention. So we've been figuring out entertainment, we've been figuring out mental health, we've been figuring out systems, you know, even looking, even these systems we're on right now have improved dramatically in just a year because all of a sudden the whole world was using, you know, was whether it be Teams or Zoom or all the other platforms. And so it's amazing how quickly technology has changed to improve based on this um, this need. Now, I kind of took a little sidetrack there, but these are the sorts of things they need to be thinking about to make sure it can happen. And my goal is that we can still get to Mars by the mid-2030s. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, we're all in a practice around here, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so you're saying we got the momentum and everything. And so you think we are on track to by by the 2030s to do that? I, I think we, we can be. And this also depends on, I know there's a lot of differences of opinion out there on how we're going to do this, whether this will be commercial, whether this be NASA, whether it be a combination. I think it'll be a combination. I think this will be a partnership between all these players if we can find the right balance, uh, at least when we're going to Mars. But still, we need to make the right decisions, even with all the positive developments we've had over the last decade, and particularly over the last few years, if we don't make the right decisions, if we just don't allow ourselves to take risks, that could derail everything. We need to be able to embrace risk, not ridiculous risk, but it's a dangerous thing going to Mars. We're not going to be able to solve that. There's only so much we can spend on, you know, safety when it's just an inherently dangerous thing. So, you know, yes, we don't want to take stupid risks, but there's also there's a point where you got to say we have to accept this level of risk. Let's not do something that we can prevent easily, but let's not delay for years or decades and spend billions and billions and billions more than we need to to try to find some negligible reduction of risk, you know, when it's really not making much of a difference, particularly compared to the total totality of the risk of being in a vacuum for six to eight months, you know, in a so far, you know, hundreds of millions of miles potentially away from Earth. Yeah, that's inherently dangerous. You're not going to get rid of that danger. So it's really in embracing that risk, understanding we know that we're going to do it. We'll take precautions, but we've got to make a decision on how we're doing it and just do it as you know, we've been hobbled by this, you know, not being able to make a decision. Oh, good point. And I know I think Buzz Aldrin has even said that, you know, we kind of have to adjust our aversion to risk, you know, so it's very true. Yeah, no, when we went when Buzz went to the moon, they were accepting a lot of risk. They, those were different days. And I'm not even saying that we should accept the level of risk that they estimate that, you know, Buzz and Neil and Michael Collins were accepting, but they're going to have to accept a lot more than what we generally accept right now, because it's a big, big difference between going up into low Earth orbit and then heading off to the next planet over, or at least the <laughs> next one out. So like here at Space Foundation, Explore Mars has a STEM outreach side. Could you tell us a bit about what Explore Mars is doing to reach out to tomorrow's Mars explorers? Yeah, this is very exciting. And particularly over the last two years when we brought in Janet Ivey as the president of Explore Mars. Janet is a very well-known STEM evangelist, for lack of a better phrase. You know, she's had her show, Janet's Planet, runs all these wonderful programs, which are now in partnership with us. She does these online astronaut, the Giants Planets Online Astronaut Academy, and always had this wonderful group of kids that continually comes back. But we're also, we also like to try to engage them with, for instance, our Humans to Mars Summit. We always, every time, try to bring in as many students as possible for very reduced price. Most students still have to pay, but the last summit, I think we had probably close to a thousand students registered. And so that was wonderful. Now that was online, you know, as everybody was online in 2020. But, you know, for instance, back in 2019, the last time we were able to gather, we love showing, bringing in role models. 
we brought in the Afghan girls robotics team, obviously from Afghanistan, and they were just inspiring. I think this is a big part of it, not just doing programs, but showing young people who have inspiring stories, who, who have pursued STEM, uh, despite all odds, and the Afghan girls robotics team have done that more than I think anybody can think of, because literally by doing it, they are risking their lives every day. I mean, constant threats by the Taliban for having young women learn STEM education or any education whatsoever. One of the leaders of that team's father was murdered by the Taliban, you know, because he had allowed his daughter to get educated. And so these young women just have overcome extraordinary odds and have been wonderful spokespeople for just STEM education, but also just overcoming adversity. And the show there, you know, no matter what your background is, don't let these challenges get in the way with you. You know, stay focused and use these people as an example, you know, that you can overcome these. And we're about, you know, we've done contests with STEM educators, but we're about, I'm not going to go into details because we haven't announced some of these, but we're about to launch some competitions as well over the upcoming year, which I think should dramatically increase our STEM education footprint even more. That's great. Now, like you said, those girls' determination, that's really inspiring. And just the diversity and the feeling represented and, and kids seeing that stuff and identifying with that, that's super important. So obviously, it's still early in the game with the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity copter hasn't lifted off yet. But what's your take so far on what these tools will do to advance the quest to get humans to Mars? Uh, I can't underestimate the potential impact they could have on getting humans to Mars. It's, I mean, Perseverance is just a perfect vehicle and its experiments on board to, you know, really build momentum, not only public support, but literal, practical, uh, tangible results, things that will have a direct impact. As you mentioned, the Ingenuity helicopter, well, that's great. Having the first aircraft on other planets is a great thing, but how does that directly impact it? Well, of course, you know, having the ability to have drones on Mars to accompany humans will be of great value. As you can imagine, there'll be a lot of places we will, will not want our astronauts going. We won't want them going down cliff sides, at least initially. We won't want them crawling into lava tubes. You know, eventually we will. We want, you know, as more and more people come, we'll want people actually exploring. But you can have the drones go down and explore these areas, and it either in advance of the people doing it or in replacement of the people. But people say, well, why don't you just send them anyway without people? You know, that's where the magic is when you can have humans and robots working in tandem. We still don't have any robots that are even remotely close to what humans can do, uh, particularly when they are so far away as Mars because there's such a lag time, you know, that latency between Earth and Mars. But when you have a drone or a rover that is actually can be operated by the astronauts in real time, that dramatically increases the productivity, the benefit of those robots. So, again, I don't think this argument's really argued anymore, but 10 years ago, people were arguing humans or robots. But in the last few years, I think everybody, not everybody, but most people agree it's humans and robots. This is a, can be a wonderful partnership Ingenuity helicopter will be a wonderful um, test for that. Of course, another important one for humans, sustainability for humans on Mars, 
will be the MOXIE mission. And the first ISRU test and C2 resource utilization, and it's going to pull in the CO2 Martian atmosphere and create oxygen, hopefully. <laughs> it's, uh, hopefully. And <laughs> well, and that, that really, that even more so than the helicopter. We want to have sustainability on Mars. If, you know, all of these dreams that they're talking about long term settlements or whatever, long term presence on Mars, you can't have that if we have to ship everything from Earth. Imagine if European explorers came to uh, the Americas and had to bring everything from Europe, you know, and still it, we would not be able, there would be no possibility of long-term habitation. Same thing with Mars. Yeah, we can sustain as we will the first few missions with supplies from Earth, but the faster we can actually figure out if we can live off the land, use the atmosphere, create oxygen, but even better, access the water on Mars and obviously use it for water, but also use it for oxygen and fuel and other things. Yeah. I, that that is will be, you know, that will be the biggest test for sustainability on Mars. And so uh, MOXIE, which could actually start its testing within the next month. I you know, I don't know that for sure, but I've heard I've heard tell from people who know know this uh it could be within the next month. That could be really one of the most important experiments we've ever conducted on another planet. So hopefully it's successful and hopefully successful on the first try. That would be awesome. Yeah. And of course, the big, the big, one of the big ones, sorry to interrupt, searching for life on Mars. Now, Perseverance is searching for past life, but even, even finding evidence of past microbial life would be a pretty big discovery. One of the biggest discoveries in the history of humanity. So it's... <laughs> So uh, maintaining that human presence on Mars and using resources that are closer and don't have to go back to Earth all the time, is having the moon as a way station? Is it having infrastructure orbiting and more accessible Lagrange points? What do you think? It all depends how it's done. We have always been, Explore Mars has never been opposed to going to the moon. We've always been cautious about going to the moon. And we, we've been working with the lunar community right now, actually. We have been for the last two years actually really more than that, you know, finding the right balance between going to the moon, the surface of the moon, you know, utilizing the resources there, but doing it in a way that really feeds forward to Mars and does not delay Mars. So it's finding that balance because we could very well find ourselves in a position where we go to the moon and we get stuck there for decades and we don't, we don't have any help of going to Mars, you know, until the second half of the century. We don't want that to happen. I think if we can move forward aggressively going to the surface of the moon, really, I don't necessarily, yeah, I think it's everybody assumes we're not going to be there by 2024 anymore. But if we can still keep up the momentum and say 2026, 2027, we get back to some really ambitious human spaceflight and then reel and use this in a way that is sustainable and has direct relevance to Mars. This can keep, you know, this can really build the momentum for really getting us to Mars in the 2030s in a way that's beneficial and it does not hinder going to Mars. But really, this is the trick and we have to keep our eye on the ball because if we don't really keep the pressure up, this could very well turn into a moon only project, kind of like uh, when George W. Bush announced, you know, moon, Mars and beyond. Well, over time, it turned into moon yeah, maybe Mars sometime and yeah, beyond sometime beyond that. And so I don't think many people want to emulate that. So 
but it's still going to take a lot of effort. True. Yeah. I mean, if you get into that mining and invest everything in that, I could see it could be uh, distracting from. Well, for instance, example, there are a lot of people who say, oh, we can't go to Mars until we can mine the water on the moon and create fuel depots on the moon. No, no, no. I think I'm all for actually creating, you know, having the private sector mine water on the moon and creating fuel depots if it becomes viable and economically viable. That's a big question as well. But we cannot hinge the first mission to Mars on that because we don't need it. (laughs) We can go there. I mean, I think the moon can play a vital role, but it's not required for going to Mars. I think I think it can be of great benefit. But I think there's also, and I, I'm going to be perfectly open about this, one of the best, biggest benefits, I think, is creating unity within the space community to make a rhyme. <laughs> and, you know, bringing the different sides together and finding, you know, making sure we agree on our overlapping requirements, agendas, and finding the most efficient way to move forward, you know, by going to the moon and on to Mars so we can both achieve the goals we've been going for for the last several decades. And I think that's possible. I think we've had some very good luck, uh, very good success, you know, talking with a lot of different people within the space community and the lunar community and finding a lot of overlap. Well, that's true. And, and, I, and I think advancements on the moon would, you know, beyond just unity would also mean advancements in outer space in general. And uh, but the moon is so much closer to Earth. So it is kind of like, how much is that going to benefit? Right. You know, I mean, you still need to get those resources much further out there. So that's why I was kind of wondering about that, you know, O'Neillian kind of concept of way stations or orbiting and Lagrange points, you know, closer to Mars. And, you know, that would provide services. Yeah, I don't think, you know, the people who say we should have the uh, Mars vehicles launch from the lunar surface. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. I think that's a completely unnecessary and not beneficial step. But all these programs like Gateway and other things, there's debates all over the place on this is essential, this is not essential. I think for all these programs, it really depends on how we use it, how we leverage it, what they turn into. I think we've been very clear, we're certainly not for having space station, but around the moon. You know, really has to be focused and really has to keep, once again, keep our eye on the ball. How can this be kept lean and really be used as a vehicle that truly can build partnerships for the surface of the moon, but also really test out Mars transit vehicle technologies, the things that we really need to perfect before we put a crew in a transit vehicle on the way to Mars. So if we can really use it in that way, then that's where I think it can play a really important role. You know, you were talking about the latency of using robots. Being that it's a harsh environment to humans, what do you think about the feasibility of using robots to build accommodations on Mars prior to the arrival of humans? I, I'm skeptical, at least right now. Eventually, maybe, as, they, as things perfect. But I think it's more likely that we will have pre-positioning, where we'll launch the return vehicle, launch the habitat in advance of sending the people. And that's been talked about for decades. Uberin, of course, um, proposed that in the mid-90s with the case for Mars. He didn't invent the concept. He he refined it. But it's been a key part of most of the mission architecture concepts since then, at least the ones that NASA has been working on. And so I think that's the most likely way we're going to do things for the initial missions. But once again, if they can build up infrastructure on Mars, 
I think if they can create that these automated systems to build structures, that'll be great. And uh, I think the more we can develop these things with Mars in mind, you know, develop innovations under with the lens of Mars, the more we're going to also create these innovations that could be extremely beneficial here on Earth. And this is one of the most exciting things from my perspective. You know, there are a huge number of innovations required for sustainability on Mars or anywhere else in the solar system that are not the big rockets, the big crew vehicles, but these things like, well, eating, you know, manufacturing food, breathing, environmental systems, deep space communications, artificial intelligence, uh, manufacturing, goes on and on and on. Not all of them are going to cost billions of dollars or even hundreds of millions of dollars. You get into areas where smaller businesses can make a real contribution. And these innovations might be able to benefit Earth, but also might actually create markets because, well, uh, I don't even think Elon Musk thinks he's going to make a profit if he's able to launch his own mission to Mars, or at least anytime soon. However, that's paying for the whole mission. There are all these subparts that are required that could have dramatic benefits here on Earth, but also could create markets as well, because they are small, much smaller chunks, and they have direct relevance to Earth as well. That's amazing. We're actually going to be doing a starting a whole series. Um, we haven't officially announced it yet, but um, I've mentioned it in a few programs. So uh, the Mars Innovation Forum, we're going to be doing in May a virtual program looking at all these different innovations. So you'll, we'll be officially announcing that soon. But, you know, it's going to be a long term program we're doing first with a top level one then deep dives into different areas. So the your next uh, Humans to Mars Summit will be in May. Um, vaccines actually, still, oh, actually no. The, the, nope, the okay. Mars Innovation Forum is in May, where the week that we usually do H2M. So we will be pushing H2M, the Humans to Mars Summit, until um, September again, as we did last year. And still unclear how much of an on you know in-person component. We're planning on most of it still being virtual, but we're probably going to have some on-site components. We just haven't figured out what those will be yet. Still going to play it by ear. And so hopefully we'll at least be able to have some public lectures and a reception or something, you know, or even a track. But we're certainly not going to plan the usual big event, you know, and commit to large facilities when we're just not sure what we're able going to be able to do. Because even if everybody is vaccinated by the end of July, it's going to take a while for the world to get back to normal, for companies to get back into their normal mode of business travel, etc. We are, of course, we are blocking in our dates for 2022 in May for Humans to Mars Summit as quickly as possible, though, back in Washington, D.C. That's great. And uh, what are some great moments from past summits that stand out in your memory and why? Oh, there are a lot of them. A number of years back, you know, Lockheed announced their Mars space camp at the Humans of Mars Summit. You know, UAE gave a lot of new details on their programs for their Hope Orbiter, which is now around Mars, and their Mars Science City. A lot of the STEM activities we've been doing, you know, what other things? We've had such great speakers. Of course, we've usually had the NASA administrator, or at least the deputy administrator, and we've always had good timing on that as well. Last several years, it's been perfectly timed when there are new dis new announcements out, and it just really is as though we had had like foreknowledge of this in the past. So 
You know, I think some of the things I like the most are when we going back to those innovations, when we've been able to bring in non-traditional players within the Mars community. You know, of course, we rely and we defend and we are good friends with the big industry players, you know, Lockheed, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, SpaceX, etc. But we like to try to reach out and what we're going to do with the Mars Innovation Forum as well beyond, you know, so it's the companies that are not your traditional aerospace companies, companies working on AI like IBM, Microsoft, Apple, Google, companies working on food production, whether it be agriculture or lab-grown meat. So at H2M, a couple of years ago, we had finless foods, which create lab-grown fish. And they've gotten very good at it, so it has the same texture, and it's almost identical to high-quality fish now. So it's an interesting, these all these interesting technologies, and when you can look at them, once again, through this lens, it's great to see what that Mars lens can do to help motivate some of these technologies. But for us, it's very exciting because it really broadens the base of support. It shows this is not just a bunch of rocket companies that are interested in this. You know, when you have all these interesting companies around the world investing in space, you know, slightly not not completely related to Mars. Well, it is related to Mars, actually. For good example, this wasn't at H2M, but a great example is, for instance, Anheuser-Busch. You know, you think, what what would Anheuser-Busch have an interest in? Why would they have an interest in space? Well, in 2017, they announced at South by Southwest, they wanted to be the first beer manufacturer on Mars. But then they invested in four barley experiments up on the ISS. So I believe there is still an barley experiment, you know, up on ISS that um, Anheuser-Busch sent up there. And that's great, of course. On one side, it's great if you ever want to have a beer or whiskey manufactured in space. But beyond that, this is a direct investment in agriculture, one of the required capabilities if we want sustainability in space. When you can reach out beyond the usual suspects, and whether it be an industry or bringing in the Hollywood community as well, it's always a lot of fun. You know, show there are so many people who are inspired and interested that we need to utilize them all and keep expanding, expanding this this network of people. That's perfect because you know barley is pretty much what you know sustained and grew the human population on Earth. So uh, why not start that way on Mars, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And so yeah. that's once again, it's yeah. one of these things where there are so many, you know, you have that marketed purpose, but then it goes well beyond that because this is just direct investment in a technology we need. That's a perfect segue. As, as I mentioned in the intro a little over a year ago, your book entitled Alcohol in Space, Past, Present and Future was published. Um, outside my duties at Space Foundation, I'm also a part-time professional brewer uh, locally here. Uh, so I really need to pick this book up. But uh, what made you decide to write it? Well, it's interesting. I've been, you know, you may, you probably had these discussions also over the years. It was in the space community after a conference or something. You go to a bar, uh, you know. Right. Uh, I know it's shocking, but, you know, and sometimes after a few drinks, you get a little silly. And so many times I started getting brainstorming with people. What would, if, if you could manufacture wine on Mars, what would it taste like? Would it taste like, you know, would you have that terroir, you know, absorbing some of the taste of the soil? Would it taste rusty or salty? And, you know, over time, I started thinking, 
this would be kind of a fun, lighthearted article, you know, brainstorm with some of the people in the space community, real people that have actually expertise in agriculture and biology and other things. But it originally started off as just a small article. But over time, I started looking more and more and found out there were literally dozens of companies you know, trying to figure out if they can manufacture alcohol in space or consume alcohol in space or, or working on different pro, you know, projects here on Earth, you know, with simulated Mars or lunar soil. So there, there were literally dozens of them, including, you know, big companies like Anheuser-Busch that I mentioned or other, another big company, uh, Suntory, Japanese whiskey maker, who still has a whiskey aging experiment up on ISS. They had one of them come back down to Earth, which they've been very closed-lipped about. Um, but they still have one up there. And not, they weren't the first one. Of course, Ardbeg was the first whiskey aging experiment launched in 2011, coming back in 2014. But, you know, even recently, there were 12 bottles of Bordeaux sent up in a wine aging experiment and just came back down to Earth. But you have companies like Maison Moum, a champagne producer, who were producing a champagne, a bottle, and a glass that you could consume, use in microgravity because, uh, well, as you know, I'm sure, of course, it's hard to drink out of a glass in microgravity because there's no gravity. <laughs> and so they created a glass that the champagne would adhere to inside so they could consume their product with, conv uh, quote, conviviality like you would here on Earth. And so that was really interesting. And they even tested it on the European version of the Vomit Comet, the Zero-G flight, but the European ver version. And other, other companies have been looking at that, whether it be how to deal with carbonation in space, which that's a problem as well, but also glassware in space. I have actually a, a uh, one second, I have a, a model right here. You can't see it because you can, but since it's <laughs> not, you know, a microgravity cocktail glass. Wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> a company was working on this, you know, because... In microgravity, the fluids will adhere to a surface, but you need something to channel it. So they put these channels in and they fill it from the bottom. And so you can, this kind of looks like a gourd, but they have many different designs, but you'd be able to sip your drink like a normal drink in space. So yeah, just looking at all these groups working on it, and many of them um, big companies, some of them small, some of them a little crazier than others, true. But it was, it was a lot of companies and groups. But then you had this interesting history of drinking in space as well, despite the fact that alcohol is officially prohibited in space, there has been quite a bit of drinking in space, but not as popular belief would dictate that it, it was to excess. I've never yeah. found any evidence of anybody getting inebriated in space. <laughs> that doesn't mean people haven't, but nobody told me that story. It's just mostly little shots of cognac you know, for special occasions. When there's a new crew on ISS, everybody will get together and it's like a bonding experience, a diplomatic tool. So I think it has value within reason. And, you know, of course, there are great stories from Mir before that, of course. But, you know, there have been even the first, uh, there was even alcohol consumed on the first mission to the surface of the moon. You may have heard this story right. of Buzz Aldrin um, having a communion, having wine as part of a communion ceremony on the surface of the moon. So it's an interesting story. And then, of course, in the book, I look at the history of alcohol throughout civilization, how it's played an impact in agricultural technology and civilization in general, as well as how it's been depicted in science fiction 
as well as enabling technologies like agriculture. So try to cover all those areas. That's great. Well, and you may have covered this in the book, but last summer I talked to Jason Held from Sabre Astronautics. And uh, several years ago back, they partnered with an Australian brewery to create Vostok. Uh, yeah, they, they partnered with Four, Four Pines um, Brewery. Yeah, they, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to make it drinkable in zero G, you know, both make it more tummy friendly as, you know, so it's not coming back up and then for, like a friendly carbonation level there. And then also to create a container too. Um, I'm curious, do you know anything about, you know, as far as the prospect of making alcohol in space, about yeast and fermentation behavior? I was just curious about that because you have top fermenting yeast, you have bottom fermenting yeast. I wasn't sure if like zero gravity would affect how those behave. <laughs> they will. And there's been limited, limited experimentation, you know, on um, fermentation. There's been some, but it's been still limited. And so, it's, I, I don't see any reason why not, but as you said, gravity <laughs> plays a big role in fermentation. You know, where, frankly, where does the CO2 go? It's kind of like carbonated beverages. That. You know, as you mentioned, you know, the problem with carbonated beverages in space, as you're alluding to, like on in 1G, the gas, as everybody knows, with a beer or a soft drink, the gas bubbles go up to the top and disperses into the atmosphere. And, and microgravity, it doesn't do that. It all balls in the center and starts expanding outward like that, meaning I'm saying like that, but your people are only going to hear my voice. But basically, it's an expanding circle, and it does that in your stomach. And so astronauts have reported stomach cramps and wet burps when they've consumed carbonated beverages, which isn't what beverage producers would want in their products. So that's why Jason and his team, you know, partnership tried to create, find the balance between taste and carbonation. And the taste is a big issue also because in microgravity, most astronauts report a diminished sense of taste, almost like they have a head cold. So they, you know, uh, hot spacey foods are very popular in space. And so when they were developing their beer, they went for a stout, but also tried to find how low could they have the um, carbonation level where it still tasted like a real beer, but didn't taste like essentially beer tasting tea. And so when I've spoken to a British audience, they often say, well, you should use British beer because, you know, it's stout and has a lower carbonation level. And it may be that British beer is the best suited for space. <laughs> huh, interesting. I'll uh, switch in gears a bit here uh, with the ups and downs of changing policy directives that typically come between presidencies. Does it come as some relief, at least so far, that uh, the Biden administration has signaled that they'd like to continue the Artemis program, uh, albeit with a adjusted target date? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. So far, of course, there's still a lot of mysteries out there, but you know, we're certainly happy so far with at least the signs, you know, <laughs> that are out there. Um, you know, they have indicated they support the Artemis program. They, of course, there have been other statements of um, Biden speaking to the Perseverance crew. So there have been a number already of indications their support. And so the big question will be, how is this aligned? What's the cadence of the missions? Are we if we're going back to the moon? It looks like we're still going back to the moon. So, but when? I know everybody agrees it's not going to be 2024. That's fine. I don't think I don't think most people believe we were doing it even before. And so, however, most of the mission architecture people, even during the previous administration, thought, you know, we might be able to get 
you know, bare bones get back to the moon by 2024, but it would be very minimal and it would have almost no relevance for going on to Mars. There would be no sustainability. It would be flags and footprints, but you know, more of a statement than a practical uh, long-term program. But they, most people agreed 2026, 2027, you know, is perfectly feasible and they can do that in a way that will really have relevance for moving forward and create sustainability. So I hope the Biden administration will, you know, with their support of the Artemis program, still keep it ambitious. You know, maybe not 2024, but really aim for that 2026, 2027 timeframe for the moon and still keep their eyes for getting to Mars. And I mean, to the surface of Mars by the mid 2030s. You know, if we have something like a, an orbiting mission or a flyby in the meantime, you know, test out systems, that's fine. But, you know, those also can't be used in an excuse not to go to the surface. You know, say, oh, we went to Mars and, you know, we just fly, you know, orbited or something like that. That's not good enough. And so we can't use that as an excuse not to go to the surface of Mars. So if we can really put together a cadence, you know, land on the moon by 2026, 2077. You know, if we're going to do orbital or flyby, do something like somewhere between 2030 and 2033. And uh, if we can't land on Mars in that time period, try to get to Mars in that 2035 time period or um, sooner. You know, if you're talking to Elon, of course, he says he can get there sooner. If he can, that is terrific. But we don't pick horses on this. We hope everybody succeeds. And, you know, I think having more players at this is a good thing. If we have redundancy and if there's a setback with one, yeah, we still have the other. And so I, I'm not I don't buy into this. Oh, we need to drop this for that or drop that for this. Hell, I'm I'm for all of it. Everything seems to be moving forward. Not, none of it's moving as fast as any of us want, but we are still making progress forward. So it's great. So I mentioned your political involvement earlier. What are some of the particularly memorable political efforts that you've taken part in personally? Yeah, no, it's a hard one. There have been a lot of them. You know, I've gone up, done a lot of talking on the Hill with various groups, with Explore Mars, with, you know, other groups that we partner with, like Space Exploration Alliance, where we do this annual blitz with them. Uh, of course, you know, I've testified in front of Congress, and that's always been, you know, a lot of fun, hopefully effective. But I think I think I'm going to talk about it more in the top level angle rather than a single meeting or a single event. You know, it's when you can actually see direct evidence of what you've been advocating or almost verbatim from talking points that you handed off. And we've seen this a number of times where it's, you know, whereas you almost see, you know, members of Congress practically reading off what you had sent them before in statements, or if you see that reflected in a bill, or for instance, in the 2017 Mars Transition Authorization Act, you know, Explore the Humans to Mars report, which Explore Mars produces, was referred to it in it. And we were the only nonprofit that was mentioned by name in that very important piece of legislation. So I think that's the most important and uh, most satisfying thing, even more than the high profile things like occasionally, you know, testifying. Yeah, that, that has that's high profile, but how much impact it had, I don't have a clue. But there are other things I can point directly to the impact because you can see it or when it was pointed to right there or uh, when members of Congress refer to your programs or things that you're doing. That's a good thing. And or like, for instance, similar uh, back in 
you know, once again, this was the previous administration, of course, because it's only been a couple of months of the current administration. But back at like the uh, Space Council meeting in August 2019, you know, the administrator calling out Explore Mars, as well as Clive Neal from the lunar community, you know, on our partnership of the lunar community and the Mars community partnering finally to get things done, you know, getting acknowledgement. He was sitting next to the vice president at the time. So things like that are satisfying when you can see that these efforts have actually at least been noticed. Get that validation for sure. Yeah, I I think I think all of us, you know, and a lot of organizations play a big role in this. Obviously, the Space Foundation and other groups like Planetary Society and all the different industry groups play a significant role in this. You had mentioned Elon there and the uh, SpaceX Starship 10 or the SN10 test landed uh, successfully last week. Um, It did blow up shortly thereafter, but it's progress. Uh, yep. uh, what, what are your thoughts on that uh, thus far with their Mars efforts? And are you encouraged about it? Yeah, okay. yeah I absolutely. Yeah, I think this, you know, they've been making some wonderful progress. Still a long way to go, but I think it's wonderful to see this. And it's great that so much in the public as well. And this the great thing about the model that SpaceX is able to follow because they're allowed to blow stuff up. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think most of the other space community would love to be able to do that but created this wonderful model and also been able to market when things blow up as well, which is really great that using that is part of the entertainment value. So, you know, it still remains to see how quickly this thing can be utilized for getting to Mars or how quickly it can get to orbit. I know on earlier um, interviews, even when we had Elon Musk at our conference virtually back in August, he had mentioned that he hoped that they'd be able to get Starship to orbit as early as this year and saying that we probably will blow up a few times first. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's, it'll happen or not, but I think the fact that they're able to turn around so quickly, you know, is wonderful. But, you know, with everything else going on, that's the exciting part. It, you know, a lot of press goes to SpaceX as it should. But, you know, Blue Origins moving forward, they have a little bit of a setback with the new Glenn. But, you know, and hopefully Artemis 1 will go off this year as well by the end of the year. So it could be, this could be already is an exciting year, but this could be a, one of the most uh, eventful and important years in space history. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, and what what gets people's attention like explosions, right? My nine-year-old is fascinated with with it already too. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Darn, it didn't blow up. It went into space. Now, uh, better right. luck next time. <laughs> right. Um, so, in uh, past op-eds, you've stated that the U.S. space program is less than one half of one percent of the federal budget, and that the efforts specific to Mars are only a small portion of that. Is that still the case? Pretty much, yeah. We've got NASA's gotten some increases over the last few years, but it's still roughly in the same area. I don't remember exactly if it's where it's standing right now, but it's not far off that. Regardless, it's a very, very tiny percentage, and this is where there's been a big problem. It's perception. You know, a lot of the people argue against the space program are doing it under this assumption that it's like rivaling the military and funding. <laughs> or if you ask them what percentage of the federal budget does it take, they'll often say 5%, 10%, as high as 20%. And, it, you know, it's not even close to that. We have answers that are like 10, 20, 30 times what it gets. And so, you know, or the people who say, oh, we should solve some of the problems of the world, which I think canceling NASA would be counterproductive to that, obviously. 
But, you know, I think once again, they think it's a much larger percentage, like it's entitlements or NASA, whereas is NASA is literally within the drop in a bucket where it's like 1% or less NASA is like one less than 1% of entitlement. I mean, you know, social entitlement. I know that's kind of the word entitlement spending is politicized, but, you know, the social programs, um, you know, like Social Security, Medicare, all necessary programs that I support. But you know, if you were to take NASA's budget, literally is less than 1% of all those programs combined. And so if anybody were to say to you, oh, we're going to solve all the problems, we're going to increase social spending by 1%. <laughs> I don't think people would think that would solve all the problems of the world. However, that small half of a percent of the federal budget has a really big impact on national morale. Think of how excited the world and the country was with perseverance. Think about all the impact it has on innovation, on science. It just, it gives back a lot more, far more than, than we put into it. And we would notice if we ever got rid of the program, even with the private sector taking over a large portion of efforts, you know, without that driving force, we would certainly notice. You've also said that the costs cited to get humans to Mars have often been inflated, sometimes in excess of one trillion, <laughs> and that the actual cost would be much more reasonable. Uh, what do you think is a more uh, realistic figure? It's always hard getting into numbers, but you know, it's you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give you an exact number, but you were right that it's not even close to a trillion. We haven't spent a trillion dollars on NASA with all budget combined. Or we might have, I should do the calculation again soon. Then talking from numbers were from a few years ago, but I think this still holds that even with adjusted dollars, we haven't reached a trillion dollars since 1958 till now. So we're not going to spend a trillion dollars going to Mars. It won't cost nearly that much, but even better reason, we wouldn't spend a trillion dollars going to Mars. It would never be supported, you know? And so I wouldn't support spending a trillion dollars going to Mars. And so most of the plans are actually can be achieved for not really much more than what NASA is getting now. It will require increases and some little spikes here and there when you need like key pieces of hardware. But with all these other players out there as well, it'll be interesting to see if you can find the right hybrid, you know, partnering with the different players, you know, the legacy industry, the newer ones like SpaceX, Blue Origin and international players. Can we find that right balance where we can just not only get it done with, you know, not much of an increase in the budget, but, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, we'll need increases, but I'm not saying we're not going to double the budget or at least in any given year. But, you know, I think we can certainly do it without not without a large increase. And what I've said many times in articles and on shows like this, we'll probably spend roughly the same amount on NASA over the next 15 to 20 years, whether we go to Mars or not, or we go back to the moon or not. You know, we can either find ourselves 20 years down the line, pretty much where we are now saying, well, maybe in the next 15 to 20 years, we'll be able to go to Mars or, and having spent all that money or have spent the money and say, we have returned to the moon. We are now walking on Mars. We have now discovered life potentially on another planet. I prefer the latter, you know, having actually spent the money that's going to be spent either way and spend it efficiently. And this is where I, you know, sometimes people roll their eyes, but I think it's going back to the moon and onto Mars is fiscally responsible. You know, can you say that if we hinder NASA and don't let them do great things and we still spend the same amount, that's inefficient and a the right way to spend taxpayer funds? 
No, I think if we can actually spend the same funds and do something historic, ambitious, inspiring, you know, I think that's a far more efficient, far more responsible way of spending taxpayer dollars. And uh, for those of us not on Capitol Hill, what's the best way for an average Joe or Jane to get involved and support the effort to getting humans to Mars? Plenty. Oh, there's so many ways. You do not need to be an engineer. You do not need to be a scientist. I'm not an engineer or a scientist. You can just merely join one of these advocacy groups out there. You can write Congress. You can come to a conference. There are so many different ways within the space community, you know, to volunteer, to, you know, whether you are a good writer, whether you are an accountant, whether you are an attorney. If you have technical knowledge, not necessarily space, space is going to require all these things. I remember at a, what was it, may have been at the NSTA, National Science Teachers Association Conference, you know, and a teacher went by when they saw my sign, Mars. Oh, I don't qualify. It's not something because I do. I'm a biology teacher. Well, you have direct relevance because one of the biggest questions we're trying to answer is their life on Mars. How does it relate to Mars, you know, life on Earth? And that can directly relate to what you're teaching in class without changing your curricula at all, showing what you're teaching the class in a way that, you know, how can this be used on Mars? So there are so many different areas where, as I was mentioning, even with the innovation forum, that you don't have to be an engineer or scientist or, you know, traditional part of the aerospace community. You can be any number of different disciplines or have talents that can be of use or even in the arts community. We've been talking to composers and artists trying to disseminate this passion through music and art. It just, yeah, it just goes on and on. I think that's all the questions I had. Thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. We hope that your uh, upcoming events are a success. And uh, needless to say, we all look forward to that glorious moment when your uh, mission of getting humans to Mars is fulfilled. No, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Space Foundation Space for You podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and of course our website, spacefoundation.org, where you can also learn about the various ways you can support the Space Foundation. And all of these outlets and more, it's Space Foundation's mission to be a gateway to education, information, and collaboration for space exploration and space-inspired industries that drive the global space ecosystem. As always at Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thanks for listening.